Welcome to episode 241 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. We've got a great lineup uh, today. Uh, we've uh, taken what would have been an interview topic and uh, uh, transformed it into part of our news roundup. Uh, and we'll be uh, talking to Adam Kandub, uh, who's a professor of law and director of the Intellectual Property Information and Communication Law Program at Michigan State uh, uh, about um, the USMCA, the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement. Um, uh, And also, we have um, uh, Paul Rosenzweig, founder of Red Branch Consulting uh, and former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy at DHS. We got Jamil Jaffer, uh, founder of the uh, National Security Institute and a professor at George Mason. We've got Gus Hurwitz, uh, who's a professor of law at the University of Nebraska. Uh, We've got Nick Weaver, senior researcher at the International Computer Science Institute and a lecturer in computer science at UC Berkeley. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. So that'll get us going right away. Uh, There was an astonishingly depressing story about how Uber managed to kill that woman in Arizona uh, and the build-up to that. Uh, uh, I, I think there's a whole new uh, law of technology, but uh, what did you draw from that? Tragic and inevitable. The problem is, is self-driving cars are actually a really hard problem. It's easy to get the 90% there, the drive on a freeway. It's hard to get that last 10%. And Uber, as a corporate culture, is rife with awful. And so basically what it is is multiple things. They were cutting corners on the computer going, oh, the safety driver will save us. Then cutting back on the safety drivers. And the uh, user experience is you don't have a human back up a computer. You have a computer back up a human because humans get bored and watch videos and the like. And so in many ways, this accident was tragically inevitable. But to inject a little levity, they do have to keep up with Tesla in that department. (laughs) Fair enough, yes. So uh, I was going to say, yeah, I'm I'm a little more optimistic uh, than Nick about the long-term prospects, I think. Uh, which is to say 90% is better than most human beings. Um, And the question is not going to be, is it perfect, but how much better or worse is it than human driving? And I think in the mid to long term, it's going to clearly be safer. Um, I do agree with one thing, though, which is that there's a real culture conflict here between the Valley move towards rapid development and deployment. You know, the, the Facebook move fast and break stuff. That works just fine when all you're doing is is writing code and maybe breaking people's privacy, but not killing people right away. Uh, it doesn't work as well in uh, in uh, the Internet of Things where human safety and, and, and well-being is at risk. I think what this portends, I mean, since we're lawyers talking about law, uh, to quote my favorite Bakerism, is uh, is likely uh, greater regulation in this field that will probably stifle uh, the pace of development a fair bit uh, and uh, at uncertain long-term gain or loss. 
Yeah. So the law that I think you can derive from this, uh, because it appears that these engineers really were afraid they were going to all lose their jobs because uh, uh, Shauti was going to come down and take a ride and it would be bumpy and stop and go and he wouldn't like it and he'll say that he would say the whole project is uh, misbegotten. Uh, and so they turned off a lot of the braking um, in order to avoid that. Um, and my the law I would derive from this is that you don't really know how evil a technology is until you've seen it used by engineers who are afraid they're going to lose their jobs. Uh, that's when people start throwing out the stuff that they don't care about uh, uh, and uh, revealing the the technology in its essence. That's that's why Twitter is so woke-ridden. Uh, it, it's not making any money. So they're afraid of their customers. They're afraid of their own employees. And uh, in order to pacify them without giving them money, they're uh, uh, embodying social justice uh, uh, warrior norms into uh, their decisions about who can speak on Twitter. Uh, Yahoo security, same thing. Uh, they didn't have any security because they didn't have any money. Uh, and that shows you that at the end of the day, uh, these social media companies are going to throw out your security because uh, it doesn't pay. I, I love this. There was a story uh, uh, suggesting that um, airlines now have an AI uh, algorithm that says, "Does this is is this a family unit? Do they all have the same last name? If so, let's spread them around the plane and then make them pay to come back together." Uh, <laughs> uh, Ryanair apparently is uh, uh, does the most to randomize their family unit uh, seating and then does charge people uh, to pick their own seats. Uh, um, uh, so it's only when people are really starting, you know, at the down to the last nickel uh, that they start showing you how this technology is going to be used in the long run. I think they charge more than just a nickel for that, Stuart. <laughs> That's true. Okay, fair enough. And uh, the heuristic is actually pretty easy, and it's uh, just do not give the people seats until they check in, at which point, well, all the contiguous blocks are already taken. You don't need an AI for that. Uh, that, that, that you may well be right. Although, um, uh, yes, it, it is true that you're going to get random assignment and you'll know it and they'll offer you a chance to avoid random assignment. Uh, 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 although I would have thought that if you said, oh, we'll take the middle seat, that that would work. Uh, next thing you'll know, they'll say, you're not allowed to change seats with people to get your family back together, which of course is how people work it out in real life on the plane. Uh, and they'll come up with some safety reason why you can't do that. So Jamil, Gus, Facebook um, is talking about, or at least uh, Zuckerberg is talking about, having a Supreme Court that would uh, get it out of the wokeness dilemma in which you can just never be more woke than Twitter. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and frankly, uh, Zuckerberg is just not very good at uh, uh, this kind of policy stuff. Uh, so he'd like to turn it over to a Supreme Court. Does, it make it, does that make sense? So my take is that this is either the worst idea ever in true Zuckerberg fashion, or it's a really brilliant uh, business move on Zuckerberg's part. Um, it, it has all of the uh, telltale signs of a traditional Zuckerberg doesn't understand how hard these problems are. 
uh, naive sort of, let's just push this to someone else and wave a magic wand and the problem will go away. The hard question with this is, what are the rules that the Supreme Court of Content uh, would enforce going to be? And that's the hard thing to answer. It's hard to figure that out. On the other hand, the, the thing that makes me think this might be brilliant is if the goal here isn't just to create a Supreme Court of Content, uh, a really bizarre term, but a Supreme Court of Content for Facebook, but to truly create an independent third-party arbiter of these content disputes that could uh, uh, be used by other social media companies and in other uh, uh, industries, that might be a really good way for Zuckerberg to highlight, hey, this isn't a Facebook problem. These are hard content questions. These are wicked problems that we as a company can't answer. Um, and this is an industry problem, not a Facebook problem. If he's able to spin it that way, uh, that would be a really interesting move. Anything to get out of the barrel. Uh, Paul? I'm uh, less persuaded uh, that it'll be an effective method in the long run. I, I, I think I agree that it is a, a good uh, PR move. But it doesn't it can't really obscure the fact that somebody's managing content. Right. And and in the end, Facebook is going to own it. Uh, I mean, even if uh, I mean, you jocularly said, well, what if he gets uh, uh, Merrick Garland? Right. Yep. You know, I hear he's um, available. I hear he's available. <laughs> but it's really got to be both Merrick Garland and somebody from Germany and maybe somebody from India and maybe somebody from China. And then let's throw in a, a, a Brazilian just to make it five. And, you know, it isn't going to work very well unless it has uh, for Facebook to really head off its problems around the globe, unless it has global buy in. And so Merrick's not uh, not enough. Yeah, there, there's no way that this idea is going to work because it's trying to solve what is a, a classic wicked problem. We've got different values of speech from around the world and we can't resolve them. Um, even if we do have a representative body of judges on this court, all that that will reveal is the same problem that we ha have in every cross-border fight. Um, there are different competing values that are oftentimes um, irreconcilable. But there, there is the, the, the value of being able to say to everybody, look, we've created this place that you can fill with your content uh, uh, standards. Uh, you figure out what they are and we'll be glad to enforce them. And, and that uh, um, lets people fight among themselves as opposed to uh, uh, everybody beating up uh, Facebook first for what they've done and then what they haven't done and uh, uh, back and forth. Uh, so maybe it is uh, uh, particularly clever. Except that yeah, it doesn't have... actually solve the Facebook problem. The Facebook problem on the content moderation is not the few big big, high-profile Alex Jones types. It's the grinding day-to-day -day things. Yeah, but, but it does solve one problem in the sense that, you know, when Congress didn't um, sort of didn't want accountability, the president wanted, didn't want accountability for handing out radio and television licenses, they gave it to this independent entity called the FCC, and thus it was able to pretty much get what it wanted um, without very much accountability or with less accountability. And I think that that could be exactly what Zuckerberg wants, is that he'll have this facade of independence and it will act in the public interest, whatever that is, just like the FCC does. And if they make a bad decision, he can say, well, it's not me. It's this independent body of, of good, wise thinkers who are representative of the world. Um, you know, not my problem. And uh, from that perspective, it, it, it could be very effective. 
everyone should go to law school and take administrative law because uh, what what Adam is uh, really getting at um, is uh, independent agencies have a, a long uh, history. We generally create them with the idea that, hey, this is going to bring about technocratic expertise that will solve these really hard problems when the reality is it's more an, a, a politically expedient way to push the politically hard problems to someone else. Um, and then uh, the folks who create the agency, if it succeeds, can say, look what I did. I'm great. I created that agency, that independent body. And if it fails, the person who created it can say, look at that failure. We need to have more resources and we need to try harder. And you should uh, uh, give your trust to us because we're trying to solve this problem. And that and that and that really is the theme of what we've seen in this space. I mean, we've seen we see Zuckerberg not only doing that with the with the sort of content Supreme Court, uh, but we've seen Brad Smith do it with Microsoft and these these tech accords and the Paris call and the like. Um, and we also we, we even see Zuckerberg doing it here uh, when he talks about um, uh, the idea that were, that now Facebook is working with governments to create regulation. So again, this is not necessarily. A bad thing in the sense that somebody's got to do this and political accountability for these decisions won't necessarily be a bad thing. And bringing you know, governments and industry together to work on these problems is probably the right call. That being said, let's, let's call it what it is, which is everyone's trying to toss the hot potato to somebody else while saying, oh, look, we're – you know, as, as both Adam and Gus have said, while trying to say, well, look, we're trying to work with these guys. We tried to make it work, and if it doesn't work, well, then you know, we can solve this problem for you, but you might not like it the way we do it, but we tried. Yeah. So as an as a good example of just how hard it is to be Facebook these days, uh, 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 I uh, uh, am looking at a uh, uh, the procedures in a case called six four three versus Facebook. Uh, uh, you gotta love this. It is a uh, um, six four three uh, was a company that created an app for Facebook that would show you pictures of all your friends and your friends' friends wearing bikinis. Uh, and uh, when Facebook said, we don't really like that app, uh, uh, 643 decided that its real uh, future in business was suing. Um, and they collected a whole bunch of stuff under a uh, confidentiality order. And then in an absolutely bizarre uh, sequence of events, uh, one of the guys who had access to this, uh, this, uh, the materials that Facebook had produced under uh, confidentiality order, uh, but wasn't supposed to, went to the UK and just happened to be talking to a Guardian uh, a reporter who just happened to introduce him to somebody at the uh, UK um, Parliament Committee on uh, Mass Media and the like, uh, uh, who just happened to have the Sergeant at Arms hand. Uh, to tell this guy that he was obliged to cough up all the data that uh, he was holding under a, a confidentiality order. Uh, and lo and behold, he did, but he says it's not his fault. Uh, it's kind of a, just an astonishing um, uh, and, to my mind, highly suspect uh, chain of events. Uh, 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 is is there any possibility that this was just a, uh, a as it's portrayed by the uh, six four three uh, uh, guys uh, a series of unfortunate events that led to the exposure of all this uh, uh, confidential data? I find it plausible, having read through it, that it looks like he was basically leaking to the reporter, going hint hint the unredacted version of these filings is interesting, back and forth, back and forth. And he did get caught up in it. But 
Dan, this is hardball on the British MPs part. Uh, why don't they just ask for this from Facebook itself? Yeah, wouldn't you but, think? But they yeah. have. They have you know, I, I mean, I think this is felony failure to bow and scrape, and Facebook is getting exactly what it deserves. <laughs> they've, they've been asked to come to this thing twice, and Zuckerberg just says, no, I'm not coming. And, you know, good for him. Now, now, good for you. You know, this is, uh, you know, I, I got I have no brief in the fight over whether or not this is actually relevant to anything that the British government is is reasonably uh, interested in. But governments are the alpha predator. You know, you you mess with them at your own risk. And I have zero sympathy with Facebook. Yeah, sure. It's collusive. But so is every every um a congressional investigation that's ever happened in America. Yeah, oh, fair enough. Every one of them involves some disgruntled loser in some regulatory or legal thing who who finds a, a sympathetic ear. Yeah, I'm pretty skeptical that the sergeant at arms has ever been used in a discovery dispute before. Uh, and I am conscious of the fact that uh, the ethical rules of the uh, UK parliament don't actually prohibit members of parliament from having second jobs as far as I can tell. They just have to disclose them. Uh, and that makes me wonder whether the second job of some of the committee members or this committee chair might have some bearing on their interest in this dispute. Yeah, my vote is always um, for perfidious Albion, and I think there's a lot of. Uh, <laughs> it seemed to me, reading through it, that that um, I would agree with Paul. There's a lot of collusive behavior going on here that um, uh, at least strikes my American sensibility as as a bit um, extreme, uh, even uh, even for Facebook. Okay, so the Commerce Department has published an advance notice of proposed rulemaking, which is it's not even a notice of proposed rulemaking. They're taking comment on whether to take comment on uh, 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 what are emerging technologies that ought to be subject to um, control, export control uh, uh, tied to the new FIRMA bill, the new CFIUS bill. Uh, uh, the goal was to identify the technologies that really scared uh, the uh, Defense Department if they turned out to be uh, developed and accessed by the Chinese, to be candid. Um, Gus, uh, this is a complex rule and a lengthy one, uh, but it's also a little formless. Uh, yeah. So my take on this is basically uh, we are all trade lawyers now. Um, I at a, a conference uh, last month that I uh, helped to uh, organize with uh, ICLE, the International Center for Law and Economics and the University of Leeds. It was an antitrust conference. And at the end of the day, we were talking about international issues. Um, and the conclusion, I think, of everyone in the room was if you're an antitrust lawyer, you have to be a CFIUS lawyer today. You have to understand trade law. You have to understand all of these emerging dynamics. And I'd say if you're an IP lawyer, uh, this is increasingly the case uh, as well. Um, so I, I think what uh, the Department of Commerce is doing with this um, advanced NPRM, it's uh, no surprise. Um, this is a uh, uh, requirement that it uh, look at these emerging technology areas and decide uh, how they should be uh, classified um, for export control purposes. Uh, this was in the NDAA. Uh, so we've had four or five months notice uh, that uh, this was coming. But uh, the range of emerging technology areas is really broad. 
um, from uh, AI and machine learning to uh, GPS uh, technology to data analytics, robotics, additive manufacturing, that is 3D printing, um, and uh, hypersonics, that one might make more sense uh, that, uh, or make uh, be less surprising to see included in here. But it's basically every technology that any tech company, tech industry is working to develop is uh, uh, covered by this. And that doesn't mean that uh, they're going to be subject to export controls. It means that uh, uh, BIS is going to do a study. There are, I think, uh, six or seven different questions that they're asking about each of these uh, sectors. And it will determine which of the different uh, ITAR classifications uh, these technologies will be subject to, uh, whether or not they can be exported at all, or whether or not you just need a license in order to uh, work on them uh, if you have international contacts. And the questions uh, that are being asked include, uh, what is the current status of these technologies? Um, how intrusive or obtrusive to research and development would these restrictions be? How disruptive would it be? to industry. Uh, so it's entirely possible uh, uh, commerce will take a light touch approach to looking at these, but uh, depending on the amount of uh, political uh, influence in particular that goes into the process, this could be a, a, a dramatic burden on wide sectors of the high-tech industry. I, I'm guessing that the, uh, uh, the the Commerce Department, which likes to, uh, uh, to spur commerce in the United States, is uh, sort of hoping that they get some critical uh, uh, comments from industry about the scope of these things. But, Paul, this does sort of look to me as though it is an American or at least an American Defense Department's version of industrial policy for the 21st century. Yeah, no, I think it is. Um, I think it is uh, destined uh, to be the, the. I mean, I think as, as we were just talking about, it's destined to be the venue for much of the controversy over the next 10 to 15 years. I think that the big problem is going to be that uh, uh, it's unlikely to really be successful. Industrial policy works with hard stuff that is that is within your physical control. It's much more difficult with tech that is uh, ideas based like 3D printing. And so, you know, it has it. It, it can have a, a slightly palliative effect. But I don't think that it's going to uh, I think in the end, we're going to see that it's, the costs are greater than the benefits. But it's going to be the main thrust of how we try and control military technology for the next 10, 15 years. I don't problem, think it'll work. Yeah. Yeah. Because. The problem is, is the real threats are so incredibly dual use. Like a 3D printer is will be used for guns included, and so with such dual use nature, that anybody who's trying to remotely participate in the modern technology will have the resources necessary and the ideas necessary to take advantage of this dual use stuff. Yeah, Nick just hit the uh, big problem out of the park. Everything, all these technologies are dual use. Um, we saw uh, uh, these fights uh, back uh, uh, 25 years ago in encryption. And of course, uh, as Paul says, uh, the ideas element makes it very difficult to use trade controls to uh, uh, control these technologies and add in the supply chain aspects of this. Um, the, the nature of dual-use technologies we've been struggling with for uh, more than 25 years, but it's pervasive in every aspect of the tech industry today. 
And it poses real problems for uh, going back to how Paul described uh, uh, the governments of the world. I forget the exact phrase that he used, but they're, they're the uh, big bads of the world. They have lots of power to control things. And if you mess with them, they're going to mess with you back. Well, they're not just messing with individual companies here. They're messing with entire industries. And uh, it's hard to see how that doesn't have negative effects for civilian uses. So here's my prediction uh, that within uh, a year, we will see this list again, uh, but it will be uh, on China's industrial policy uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, priority list. Uh, uh, and indeed, uh, if the uh, U.S. government is thinking carefully about this, they'll put a whole bunch of stuff on there that they, they think is – intriguing but actually ultimately dumb dead-end technology in the hopes that the Chinese will pour billions into it uh, uh, in imitation of what it thinks U.S. policy is. All right. That's called stealth aircraft. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Only we were that smart. Worth noting, uh, the comment deadline is December 19th, so they gave a a minimal 30-day comment window on the ANPRM. So uh, warm up your typewriters, everyone. All right. Uh, So the the thing that I wanted to talk to Adam about uh, is uh, an interesting uh, piece he wrote uh, for Real Clear Politics on uh, what most people are calling NAFTA 2.0, but which uh, uh, formally is known as the USMCA, the US-Mexico-Canada Agreement. And uh, Adam did what I always meant to do but didn't, which was to actually read the uh, uh, the USMCA as it affects platform and uh, software companies uh, uh, to see What's in the uh, uh, the agreement? Uh, uh, and I got to say, Adam, you found some pretty surprising and somewhat troubling things. Well, I'm glad you agree. I was really shocked. Um, what we saw was that um, the USMCA does a sort of sub rosa expansion of Section 230 um, immunity. Um, specifically, it enlarges the immunity that um, big uh, platforms enjoy um, with regard to um, material that the provider or user considers uh, to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable. Uh, Right now, um, Facebook, uh, Twitter, um, they can remove such um, obviously, you know, sexual or child unfriendly language um, with complete uh, immunity from liability. Um, but what the USMCA does is it takes out obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable, and just says leaves the other. Excuse me, just leaves the otherwise objectionable. So right now, it gives um, Twitter and Facebook the ability to uh, remove. Any material it finds objectionable uh, without any uh, legal uh, consequence. Um, And this is kind of ironic coming from our president who has criticized the social media platforms and has promised to be a populist. So um, it it to me is very troublesome. So Section 230, um, Twitter just uh, apparently has decided that uh, uh, it's going to uh, uh, treat as hate speech 
uh, what the, what's called dead nameism. Uh, that is to say, if you're transgender and you change your name from a boy's name to a girl's name, people who continue to use the boy's name are engaged in hate speech. Uh, I have actually, uh, uh, in my uh, never-ending quest to get uh, uh, suspended from every social media platform, I have tweeted that I want to know whether that means I can say uh, uh, that uh, Bradley Manning is a traitor or whether that means that I'm engaged in hate speech. Uh, uh, so we'll find out uh, uh, once again uh, as I take my social uh, media identities in hand and put them at risk. Uh, but if I didn't like that, I could sue Twitter saying you don't have an immunity for decisions of that kind. Having made a decision of that kind, you no longer – you are engaged in editorial action and you're responsible for everything everybody tweets. Uh, um, and so uh, the scope of the 230 immunity – uh, has been part of the debate about social platform uh, discrimination against conservatives and uh, uh, the extent to which uh, uh, it ought to be honored. And now it looks as though this administration has agreed to dramatically expand the immunity. Exactly. Um, because, you know, for instance, right now, if they, if they kicked you off for saying something like Bradley Manning is a traitor, uh, presumably you would have some sort of action, perhaps in consumer fraud, in contract, um, perhaps even some type of uh, anti-discrimination action in, in those sort of in those states that protect um, you against discrimination based on your political beliefs. But now, essentially, um, what this what the USMCA says is no, Twitter can just cut you off if they find you objectionable for any reason, um, and it's really troubling because they Twitter seems to be getting very uh, erratic and a little irrational in whom they're they're kicking off. I mean, every day it's someone different um, with who, who doesn't really say anything that's obscene. Who doesn't see, say anything that's particularly hateful. Um, just someone Twitter doesn't like, and that seems the problem. Yeah, they they've they've, they've kept uh, Louis Farrakhan and give, kept his uh, <laughs> check. So uh, uh, certain kinds of hate speech apparently are okay with Twitter, um, but what I'm struck by here. We just were talking about a private Supreme Court to decide what you could say or, or not say. This is a kind of private lawmaking. Uh, these negotiations happen largely behind closed doors and they are uh, – the agreements are written to bring on board a critical mass of effective lobbying groups, mostly business groups, uh, uh, so that the agreement will have – the support of industry at a substantial level, which means you're basically asking industry, well, what what do I have to give you to get you on board with this agreement? Uh, and then once you've given it to them, it becomes law, not just law of the country, which is you know these days it's hard to uh, change. But it becomes almost a constitutional amendment because you have to negotiate with uh, the Canadians and the Mexicans uh, in order to change U.S. law. Right, it's kind of shocking because, as, as you as you as you pointed out, Trump is supposed to be a populist. Uh, he this is a decision about utilities and and services that everybody uses all the time, and it's not even being regulated by a a law coming out of a bicameralist uh, process. Uh, the House of Representatives has absolutely no say whatsoever. It's what the Senate decides to approve, um, and. It, it seems to go against the promises that Trump made, but it also goes against uh, sort of a basic democratic process in regulating the Internet. Um, and we'll see what happens in the Senate. I mean, there are 
there certainly are senators who have expressed interest in this provision, and uh, we're hoping that they might take action. So the the uh, uh, USMCA comes up for approval in the lame duck. It sure does, and um, you know the, all the moving pieces are moving, and uh, we'll see what will we'll, we'll, we'll shake out. Um, but again, this is something that you know senators have expressed some interest in, and um, you know we're hoping that moving forward it will be stripped out of the final agreement. Okay, Nick, uh, Cozy Bear is back, Fancy Bear is back. Uh, there've been a lot of attention to some of their uh, uh, recent uh, tactics. Uh, what's the takeaway? Yes, the bears hack in the woods. Um, <laughs> the takeaway is it's really hard to change your identifiers as an attacker once you've been identified. That basically they don't care anymore about getting caught. Yeah. Well, I, uh, that's a lesson they learned from China uh, and continue to uh, uh, put into effect. Um, I, I, I do want to uh, point to a, a China story uh, uh, about um, – uh, an artificial intelligence fail that really deserves to be uh, to be recognized. Gus, you pointed me toward this story, and I just loved it. Yeah, so uh, th- this is the story. It's been in the news yesterday and today. Um, a CEO of a local business uh, took out an ad for her business by putting a big picture of her face on the side of a van, and that van was driving down the street, and the AI... Uh, I saw it and recognized her face and issued a citation to her for jaywalking. Um, and I, I, I believe I've seen different stories talking about it different ways, but I believe this is uh, a technology being deployed and developed relating to the new social credit system. So uh, this raises a, a fair number of questions about uh, uh, the quality of that system. My thought was uh, folks should start printing out uh, masks of their favorite political leaders and uh, walking down the street and jaywalking with them uh, to see how they like uh, the social credit system in action. The big question is, if you're wearing a Winnie the Pooh head, does it get recognized as uh, Xi Jinping? Yeah, that would wreck, <laughs> that would wreck his social uh, score in a, heart, in a heartbeat. Uh, uh, yeah, I was thinking you could actually turn this into a business by getting a uh, uh, high-def screen that you put on your uh, 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 van and then charge people to take their f- pictures off it. <laughs> All right. Um, and uh, uh, Gus, um, uh, Nick, you you also pointed me toward a recent um, uh, what I would call a kind of aqua hack. Uh, that is to say somebody acquired a, 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 a JavaScript app and turned it into a piece of malware. Uh, more importantly, a JavaScript library. Programmers are lazy and just borrow libraries from other things. And there's this infrastructure in JavaScript that takes all the libraries together and sends them all out. And so somebody took one of these libraries that people used, took it over with the consent of the maintainer, and added code to it to steal uh, cryptocurrency because, hey, why not? But the Aqua hacks are actually another problem. And any bit of software that's maintained or that has cost to maintenance and is widely deployed, including libraries, um, extensions, et cetera, where there's an update mechanism in place, are vulnerable to this. We've seen these Aqua hacks on um, Chrome extensions and Google or and Android apps where you get a widely deployed app or extension, somebody then buys it and turns it basically into Malco. 
And it, it doesn't even need to be buying. I, I think this is uh, a really interesting liability uh, uh, challenge or puzzle here, especially for the open source community. Um, frequently, you'll have someone develop uh, uh, a widely used library five, six, seven years ago, and then they stop maintaining it because they go on with they move on with their life or they just get a job or whatever, uh, uh, and they stop maintaining it, but it's still widely used. So then a couple years later, someone comes along and says, hey, give me the keys. I'm happy to take this over for you. It's still really important to the community, and I'd love to see it developed. Uh, uh, and there's a lack of uh, human capital here, a lack of resources. So uh, it's unsurprising to see these libraries getting handed off to someone new. Um, does the original maintainer have some uh, uh, fiduciary duty or some obligation to do due diligence before transferring this uh, intellectual property or the, the keys to these kingdoms over? Um, if the answer is yes, that's imposing a, a great deal of potential liability um, on individuals who uh, uh, tend not to be sophisticated and resourceful legal actors um, in this area. They are developing these libraries because uh, they're interested in programming and the technology side. Uh, so there's a really uh, interesting and important, I think, legal question there, especially as we enter uh, uh, the third decade, fourth decade um, of uh, the open source movement existence, where a lot of uh, packages, an increasing number of packages are unmaintained. So this, this is a really interesting uh, a set of, I, I think, in many ways, emerging issues. Yeah, it's going to be it, it's going to be a big problem if you don't know who's actually maintaining something. Uh, you're in deep trouble because, uh, you know, half the time they're going to say, oh, I don't need to be paid because I can fall back on my GRU salary. Last topic. Airbnb, uh, this this is apparently the international conflict uh, version of uh, uh, episode of the uh, uh, podcast. Uh, but Airbnb has now uh, announced that it is going to refuse to allow Jewish settlers in Palestinian claimed parts of uh, uh, the Levant uh, uh, to uh, rent out their apartments, uh, and it's uh, uh, it's done that essentially under pressure from Human Rights Watch, which was about to write a report uh, sicking social justice warriors on Airbnb. Uh, uh, Paul, um, there's a lot of legal liability issues. Uh, floating around this one. Well, I, I think that's right. I mean, in effect, Airbnb is ex is having its own foreign policy. Um, let's leave aside the inconsistency of what they're doing and ask if they continue to operate in other uh, jurisdictions that are even more uh, significantly problematic with respect to human rights than Israel. Say, oh, Saudi Arabia, where we murder journalists or or Russia, where we invade foreign countries and blockade uh, things. As, as a matter of law, you know, the question for Airbnb is going to be how are they going to be affected by uh, anti-BDS legislation in the United States and, uh, and, and what is their liability going to be for succumbing to that? Um, meanwhile, what is their liability going to be in, in Europe for failing to succumb to that? So they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, and it's demonstrating yet again that international uh, tech companies – are kind of the pointy edge of the sword when it comes to conflict of laws questions. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, that's all right. It's interesting. You know, the U.S. has had anti-boycott laws since the 70s, but this probably doesn't fall foul of that because the anti-boycott uh, provisions were all aimed at the Arab nations' attempt to uh, force countries to boycott Israel by uh, using their oil wealth and saying you can't have contracts with us if you have contracts with uh, Israel. This seems not to be a state-mandated uh, um, uh, decision and therefore probably isn't covered by any of the existing boycott laws. That's true. But a lot there are 26 states right now that have anti-boycott, divest, uh, BDS laws themselves. I'm sure – Airbnb operates in some of those. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious to know how to, how Airbnb knows that the um, that the person renting the home is Jewish. Um, I'm ah. assuming they just say that they're not, or, or do they have to register, or you know, put a yellow star on their advertisement? <laughs> I don't know. But um, to or, me, that was the disturbing part. Yes. Or the other question is: is how many places outside? that would actually be on Airbnb. So they're, they might just be accepting a little collateral damage and just geo-blocking the entire area. Yeah. Uh, well, there are plenty of occupied territories around the world, uh, from Morocco to uh, um, eastern Ukraine and uh, Cyprus. Uh, uh, and so if they want to be consistent about this policy, they're going to have to start doing some pretty fine-tuned uh, um, uh, decision-making about who's going to be allowed on the uh, platform. Okay. Uh, that uh, finishes uh, a really uh, um, lively uh, episode, uh, episode 24. Of the Cyber Law Podcast. Uh, Adam, Paul, Jamil, Gus, Nick, thank you all for uh, uh, taking turns and uh, providing a lot of different uh, uh, points of view on this one. Uh, uh, I'll uh, encourage our listeners to send us comments for additional uh, participants uh, and interview subjects at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, go ahead and uh, follow me on uh, Twitter for as long as I last. Uh, I'm at Stuart Baker, and I, I usually try to put up the uh, stories we're going to cover so that you can comment on them and tell me which ones you think we ought to uh, discuss. Uh, and uh, leave us a review uh, on uh, Apple uh, iTunes or Google Play or whatever you use to subscribe to uh, uh, our uh, podcast. Uh, uh, coming up, uh, we've got Jim Langevin, uh, who is, as I've said before, one of the most thoughtful Democrats soon to be in the majority uh, in Congress working on cyber issues. Uh, so we'll talk to him about what uh, the future may hold for cyber in a Democratic House. Uh, uh, Denise Howell of This Week in Law, which is like the oldest, longest, and longest-running uh, uh, law uh, podcasts is going to be a special guest commentator uh, coming up. Uh, uh, finally, show credits, uh, Lori Paul and Christy Jorge are our producers. Doug Pickett is our audio engineer. Uh, Michael Beaver is our intern. I'm Stuart Baker, your host. Please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. <laughs> 